Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. You recall that at the end of our last episode, I've told the prophet Samuel that the young fellow looking for donkeys in front of him is the man I've chosen to be the first human king of my children. Samuel has relayed that news to Saul, telling him, you're not going to be chasing after donkeys anymore. You're the one Israel's been waiting for. And oh, the beautiful humility in Saul's reply. I come from the tribe of Benjamin, the least of all the tribes, and my family's the humblest of all the Benjamites. You've got the wrong man, sir. This sounds a lot like Gideon, if you remember back that far. Gideon was trying to get out of a job. Saul sincerely believes he's not good enough for the appointment. So Saul and his servant boy join in the post-sacrifice banquet with Samuel and about thirty other people. And Samuel makes a big deal about giving Saul both a seat at the head of the table and the choicest cut of meat, not unlike the display Samuel's father had made of favoring Hannah with a choice portion after similar sacrifices. Saul sleeps that night up on Samuel's cool roof and is sent off home the next morning. Eventually, as they reach the outskirts of town, escorted by the prophet, the servant boy is sent off ahead. Saul is retained a while in order that Samuel may reveal and initiate my will for the young Benjamite. He's not too young, though. Saul is long married and already has an adult son, of whom you'll soon hear. Samuel produces a flask of oil and proceeds to pour it over Saul's head. It's a bit of a reach, since Saul is a head taller than anyone else in Israel. Bend down here, the prophet says. He pours the oil, kisses Saul, and pronounces, Yahweh has anointed you as ruler over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of Yahweh, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. Note, please, that I am not giving the people to Saul. They are not going to be his people. They're still mine. Note also that we are not quite ready to name him king yet, just ruler. Now, this is all something that's hit Saul in the last twelve hours, so Samuel gives him a few clinching prophetic predictions that will confirm the veracity of this moment of calling and anointing in Saul's mind and heart. On his journey home that day, Saul will have three encounters with different sets of people, the conversations and circumstances of which Samuel details for Saul. Of course, they all come to pass just as the prophet predicts, with the most important coming third and last. This set of three involves the spirit, wouldn't you know? The first two prophecies having been fulfilled on the way, Saul comes upon a parade of prophets praising me with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. No trombones invented yet. My spirit is heavy upon them and soon falls upon Saul as well. In that moment, I give him a new heart, 
and he prophesies ecstatically along the others. He's close enough to home that some who witness this recognize Saul and say, Isn't that Kish's son? What does he think he is, a prophet? After things calm down and the moment passes, Saul makes his way home and gives an unremarkable report of having been told by the great prophet Samuel that his father's donkeys had been found. No mention of anything else, like being the anointed ruler of God's people. Surely it hasn't slipped his mind, but clearly it's still sinking in. There's no avoiding it, though Saul manages to do so for as long as possible, when Samuel calls another national convocation at Mizpah. You'll recall the last time he gathered everyone there was for that time of rededication to me after twenty years of theological malaise. Mizpah's become an important place, and I'm about to give them their king, but it's not exactly going to be a day of wine and roses. You can tell right away from our opening volley. Samuel gets up and proclaims, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, rescuing you from the Egyptians and then from all the other nations that have ever come after you. And in thanks, you're rejecting Yahweh, who's been saving you from calamity right and left over the years. You're rejecting him by saying, You're not good enough for us, Yahweh. Give us a human king like the nations around us. Well, you asked for it, so here it comes. Present yourselves by tribes and clans before Yahweh now, and he will reveal by lot the one he has chosen in answer to your demand for a human king. So by prescribed and sanctified lot, the options are whittled down from tribe Benjamin, to clan, Matrite, to family, Kish, to man, Saul. Only Saul is nowhere to be found. Knowing in advance the lottery's outcome, he's been hiding and has to be dragged out into view. Of course, he's pretty easy to view, being taller than anyone else in the nation and easy on the eyes to boot. So when Samuel finally gets around to pronouncing, Do you see the one Yahweh has chosen for you? There is no one like him among all the people. They can all see him just fine and shout, Long live the king! And the women swoon. Samuel lays out the rights, responsibilities, and duties of kingship for everyone's benefit and has it all written out in a book for Saul. It's not like this has taken us by surprise, and there's plenty of guidance right there waiting for anyone with sense enough to crack open my law. Deuteronomy 17, 14-20, for example, which includes, among other things, the requirement that the king have his own copy of my law so he can read, know, and live my law as an example to the people and as a reminder to not consider himself better than other Israelites. Saul has plenty of homework to do, and so everyone is sent home by Samuel, Saul too, as an age in the life of Israel, the age in which I alone have been their king, ends with the day. Now, for quite some time, we've been focused on the western side of the Jordan River here in the nation of Israel, formerly known as the Promised Land. You'll recall that three of the twelve tribes have land on the east side of the Jordan, 
those being Manasseh in the north and Gad and Reuben in the south. Well, Gad and Reuben's eastern neighbor, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is a particularly surly character who's been pressing on his western border into Gad and Reuben and gouging out the right eye of pretty much every person he can get his hands on from those tribes. In fact, all but 7,000 men have gotten gouged, and these were spared solely by their flight north to Jabesh-Gilead in the northwest corner of Gad. Well, Nahash is on the obsessive-compulsive side and won't feel comfortable until all of his enemies' eyes match. So he heads up to Jabesh-Gilead and surrounds the city. The besieged citizens agree to serve the Ammonite king if he'll make a treaty with them, but he'll only agree to spare their lives if they agree to let him gouge out their right eye as a sign of disgrace. Seeking to buy time and sending out word for help, the city's elders agree to this term if the date of their surrender is set seven days hence. Nasty Nahash agrees. This fellow isn't included in the owner's manual because he's a particularly colorful or imaginative character. He's here because this is Israel's first king's first test. When news of the situation reaches Gibeah, Saul's hometown, the man isn't even within earshot to hear the news at first. Get this, he's been out plowing the fields with his oxen. I love this. Clearly, the kingship hasn't gone to the man's head. He doesn't consider himself better than the next man. He's walking the fields behind beasts of burden. So when he comes into town, the king has to ask, why is everybody crying? Well, when he hears the news, he's both angry and inspired by my spirit. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel eleven six here. He chops up the tired, sweaty oxen. Boy, is it a dangerous thing for draft animals to appear in this story. He sends the pieces of those chopped up oxen across the map with the message, This will happen to your oxen if you don't rush to the side of Saul and Samuel as quickly as you can. So it comes as no surprise that over 300,000 respond as one ready to be commanded by their brand-spanking new king. A messenger is sent back by Saul to the besieged city, promising deliverance the next day by the time the sun is hot. And so the inhabitants promise the eye-gouging Ammonite that they'll give themselves to him the next day, and they say that at that time they'll let him do whatever he wants with them. Nasty Nahash spends the night licking his chops, dreaming of all those matching left-eyed Israelites come tomorrow. Imagine his surprise, then, when a combined 300,000-plus Israelites swarm at him from different directions right when the sun rises. They work their way through the Ammonites all morning, and the few Ammonites that get to keep their lives get to keep both their eyes, too. Well, this victory propels Saul to instant popularity. His approval ratings are through the roof, so much so that many are ready to execute those who'd had the temerity to think Israel should have had no king. This gang goes so far as to ask Samuel for names of those who'd spoken against Saul at first, and there unquestionably were some of those. To his further credit, 
Saul interjects and quashes the thought of anyone in Israel being put to death on a day that has seen Yahweh's deliverance. And with Saul's mercy ringing in his ears, Samuel calls the nation to Gilgal this time, yet another centrally located city, this one closer to the Jordan for the ease of the eastern nations, most of whose residents still have only a left eye with which to navigate the journey. There at Gilgal, they make Saul king, not just ruler, but king over all Israel. They sacrifice peace and fellowship offerings before me, and everyone rejoices greatly. Everyone but Samuel. He's too busy writing his farewell speech, which we'll listen to together next time on The Way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.